heaven and new earth. For the first heaven and first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all of this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came to me and said to me, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high, and he showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God, and its brilliance was like that of a precious jewel, like jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates, and with 12 angels at the gates. On the gates were written the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. There were three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, and three on the west. The wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were written the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. You may be seated. All right, good morning. Um, if you're new and wondering why we stand for the reading of Scripture, it's just a practice that we decided to adopt uh, that is practiced around the world. And so it's, uh, there's something about when you stand, you listen a little more uh, versus sitting back, which now, try to listen now, you're sitting down. But um, it's also a practice from the New Testament. You see Jesus uh, standing for the reading of Scripture and then sitting down to explain it. Now, if you know Roman, the, probably the thought that's going through th- your head is, how did this happen? Um, he was willing, he was eager, and he was serious about following the Lord. And that's a, that's a good combo. And so here's this 20-something-year-old uh, single guy who just wants to serve the Lord. And up comes this opportunity in Jordan. And he just says, I'll go. And he went. And now look what he's doing. Uh, and there are many opportunities around the world like that. And so, you know, especially those who are unencumbered uh, by and can move quickly, there are many opportunities for you around the world, and I urge you to follow the example of Roman and do it. We have another uh, baby that's been born. Um, Good job, guys. Uh, Frankie Ruiz Charles, born November 21 to Seth and Amanda Charles, and they're here. So... Where are you, wherever you guys are, good job. Okay, you're over there, great. Um, one in hand, one in, it's great. So congratulations, mom and baby are doing well. They're sitting right over there. All right, let's pray. 
Lord, we give you thanks for uh, Frankie and for all the other uh, babies that have been born this year. And uh, we do pray for all 27 of them to know you and treasure you and that we would be reminded of our responsibility to these parents to help them um, in this community. We turn now to your word and we ask you to make it flourish uh, the way you did for that Yemeni woman, that the, the scripture was just beautiful being read. Now make it beautiful and as it's explained. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. If you would turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 21, um, it's the last book of the Bible. So if you just go from the back and you'll find it. It's the last, the last two chapters. And if you don't have a Bible, you can just Google Revelation 21 NIV and you'll be able to follow along. How do you talk about a story that's end is a beginning? You know, there's this old T.S. Eliot poem, and it starts this way. In my beginning is my end. And the ending phrase is, in my end is my beginning. In my beginning is my end. In my end is my beginning. And I might dare say that that is the plot of every human being caught up in the story of history. In my beginning is my end. In my end is my beginning. The Christian view of time is that there is a beginning and that there is an end. And because there is an end, all of time has a purpose. All of time makes sense. We're not just a string of events, but we are chapters in a story. We are on a plot that is a big, grand plot over centuries of time that will one day end we, we've been making our way through the story of the Bible. We started in Genesis 1 and 2, the creation of the world, the creation that is marred in Genesis 3 as sin enters the world and the creation is broken. Relationships with humans and each other are broken. Our relationship with God is broken. But God promises that a child will come and crush the serpent as the serpent strikes at the heel of this coming child Years later, Abraham comes along, and Abraham is promised a child, and he's promised a land, and he's promised to be a blessing, and he's promised the nations will bless him, and he, he will bless the nations, and his, his uh, family grows, his clan grows, and grows, and grows, and grows. They end up in Egypt, where they are enslaved. Along comes Moses to bring them out of slavery uh, and bring them into the promised land, sort of. He's, God gives Moses the law, which he then gives to the people as a way to interact with God as a nation, a way to interact with God as a holy God when, they're, when they are not. He's given instructions of how to relate as uh, individuals towards each other. And Moses dies into the land. They go with Joshua and they take some of it. The judges then come up and they begin to rule in the book of Judges. They, they, don't, they don't do really that great of a job, pretty terrible job actually. And then up comes, uh, they long for this king and up comes King Saul, but he's not the guy. So here comes King David and King David is promised in 2 Samuel 7, an everlasting dynasty. There will always be someone on your uh, throne forever, David. And then within a few generations, as you know the story, there isn't anyone on the throne. And so all the prophets begin to ask, what about the promises to Abraham? What about the, what about the promises to David? Why haven't they taken place? Certainly something must happen. And so they get exiled. They're out of the land. They're down by the waters of Babylon playing on their, they, it says harps, but it's banjos. And they're, they're lamenting. They're crying. And then Ezra and Nehemiah bring them back into the land. They begin to rebuild the temple and the city. 
and the Romans come in, and it's not really great for the Jewish people, but they're the only group of people that refuse to bend the knee to, to the Roman gods, and so they're kind of this outlier. And into that comes Jesus of Nazareth, and he's going around for three years, itinerant ministry. The Roman leaders start to hear about him. Jewish leaders start to hear about him, and they crucify him for healing people. They crucify him for uh, preaching that the kingdom of God is at hand, and they put down the rebellion. Oops, he resurrects from the dead, and actually this supposed rebellion becomes the church as the Holy Spirit drops. And now for 2,000 years, the church has fanned out over all of the world. So now what? Now is the end. We like to talk about heaven. At least we like to think about heaven. Uh, there is a market for books on heaven. There is a huge market on books if you have a dream about heaven. And uh, New York Times bestsellers, which usually get retracted as uh, the people get, feel guilty. Paul experienced once heaven and writes about it in 2 Corinthians 13. But the only thing he says is, I can't talk about it. I was so overwhelmed. There was no book deal involved. And so we ask questions like, when we die, do we go to heaven? What will our bodies be like? What do you mean we're not married? Who's going to be there? Is it all going to be singing? Are we going to have choir robes on? Or is it going to be about people? Now, I love the book of Revelation. I love it so much that I'm actually going to preach through the book of Revelation next year. It is a confusing book. Anyone else confused by it? Everyone raise your hand. It is a complicated book. Uh, it's a source of division within the church. But let me just say at the front end, as we come to Revelation 21, that I can make it really clear for you in trying to understand, when you understand who it's written for. It is not written primarily for you 2,000 years later. It is written for people who are under intense, severe persecution. Now, you would think like, okay, I'm going to write a letter to someone that's under intense persecution. You probably aren't thinking about writing the book of Revelation. But that's what God is giving these people. And I'm not talking about kind of suffering in general sense. I'm talking about being, you know, crucified for miles on end going into Rome to remind people what these Christians are like. I'm talking about being tied up on posts, covered in pitch, and lit on fire to, to light the gardens of the emperor. I'm talking about your family being thrown into the Colosseum to be torn apart by animals. That's the kind of intense persecution that the people who got this letter are living through. And John is writing them to give them hope. Not flimsy hope, not spiritual lingo, and, and so the book of Revelation, you know, if you think about it, it's not meant to be, let's all esoterically get in a room and try to figure out all the symbols. It is primarily about giving hope to people who are being slaughtered. It is primarily a book about people who are losing their jobs, who are losing their families, who are having their houses plundered and things stolen from them. And so we come to the end of the story. A story to give people hope. I mean, listen, why do people die in winter? Why do people, many, many people die right after they stop working? Why do people generally die if they have no family and friends? Because they lose hope. You all probably know someone who just died. And you're like, what happened there? They died because they lost hope. 
Now, we come to the end of the story, and if you read through the New Testament, the end is supposed to influence how you live now. For example, Jesus and the Sermon on the Mount, he's walking with his disciples, and in Matthew 66, Matthew 6, we get recorded these words. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasure in heaven where moth and vermin do not destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. In other words, your heart will always follow what you love. Your heart will always worship what you love. And so, listen, what does your mind go to when you're on default mode? Now, for some men, that's like the nothing box. Like nothing comes into your brain as you drive on hours and end and your wife is wondering what you're thinking about. But just pretend that, okay, your mind goes to default. What are you thinking about? That thing is the thing you treasure most. Whatever that is, that is the thing you will end up worshiping. And so we come to the end, this view of heaven. And honestly, our culture has pathetic views about heaven. There are the cartoons, right, where we have our, these four-stringed harps that there's no way you're playing notes off of this, but you've got your harps, you've got your white gown, which looks like a 1960s choir robe, you've got a halo over your head, or you have TV shows like The Good Place or this uh, Lost that was before them, and we say weird things like, he's up there cheering for his team now and mowing his lawn. You, you, you know what's missing from all of these descriptions? It's always missing God. And that's what makes heaven heaven. It's what we long for and we know we long for it. And so I'm going to show you the answer to all of your longings in Revelation 21 as we come to the end, which is also a beginning. Okay? So verse 1 through 3, put it on the screen. What comes down? Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there's no longer any sea. I saw a holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. The symbolism here is overlapping. There is a heaven, there is an earth, there's a creation, there's a city described as coming down, then it's a bride, then it's a temple. The heaven here is a temple garden city bride. Super CGI, don't draw it. Notice right off the bat, we do not escape the earth. We don't go somewhere else. We're here. I'm not even sure that the old world is really destroyed. Let me show you why. There are, there are two places in Scripture where the earth is talked about being destroyed. The first one is in the flood of Noah, and the second one is in the end of days. And 2 Peter 3 actually mentions both. I'll just read you what he says. So this is Peter, the guy who denied Jesus. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. And the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Now, let me ask you something. What, what is, when, when, like, when the flood comes, is the earth destroyed as in obliterated or destroyed as in changed? And here is, when the fire comes, is the fire re destroying everything or is the fire purifying everything? See a difference? In fact, the, the, word, the word new can be, can be taken two ways. And there's two words for new. One new is brand new. And the other one is renewed. And guess which one it is? Renewed. 
the image is a purifying fire. There is something that is going to be remade, something that is not brand new, but something that is new. Now, these images are from Isaiah 65. See, I create new heavens and a new earth. Same exact language, right? The former things will not be remembered. They will not be brought to mind. Keep going so I can read it on the screen. I've got it here somewhere. But be glad and rejoice forever and and what I will create, for I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and the people a joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and crying will be heard in it no more. There is a radical reordering of creation right off the bat. Paul speaks of the new creation as resurrection. That is, what God did to Jesus in resurrecting him from the dead, God will now do to the creation in resurrecting it and creating something new. Heaven changes. God relocates his dwelling place to earth. Heaven right now is where God is. And eventually, God will bring that down and heaven, the new creation, will be here. Earth is our home. This is back to Genesis 1 and 2. This is back to Eden This is the new creation. This is the garden. This is a creation that will have no decay. This is a creation that will have no evil. This is a creation that will again be good. This is the promise again that God will walk with his people. I mean, just here's the parallel. Genesis 2, Revelation 22. Here's Genesis 2, 9. The Lord God made all kinds of trees to grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eyes. And in the middle of the garden, there was the tree of life. And the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Fast forward, Revelation 22, 2. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops. So see the parallel? In the Garden of Eden, there's this tree of life. Now in Revelation 22, in the new heavens and earth, there's this tree of life in the center. There's a river. Here's Genesis 2:10. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden. From there, it was separated by four headwaters. Here's Revelation 22.1. Then an angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God. So the new creation is the Garden of Eden. Jesus said, the meek will inherit the earth. When does that happen? It happens now, in this moment. Revelation 21. What was the earth like before sin entered the world? There were animals. Some people get freaked out what's going to happen to my animal in the resurrection. Listen, in the new heavens and new earth, there will be animals because there were animals in Eden. Adam and Eve are in relationship with one another. Adam and Eve in relationship with God. There's no distortion. We had bodies in the new heaven and the new earth. We're not ghosts. We don't levitate. We will hug. We will eat. We will be with one another. Know how I know we'll eat? Jesus ate. After the resurrection, what did he say to, to the, his disciples? Hey, you got some fish? Let's have a meal. We will not be angels. We will judge angels. I mean, listen, if you go to a funeral and the people in the funeral say, God has received another angel, no. They're making stuff up. That's not true. You, you don't become something other than human in the resurrection. You're a human. And there are angels, and they have been cheering on the church, and now we will judge them. I personally think we will invent things. I think we will work. 
I think we will discover things. I think we will learn things. We will drink and eat and walk and hike. And if you want to, run. You know, we will travel. I think that's part of the fall, but whatever. We will travel. We will discover things. We will be in a sinless world. We will be in the new creation. Remember, nature was built to praise God in Genesis 1 and 2. It was meant to sing its praises. It's supposed to be singing, my creator calls me good. And yet we know there is something not right about this creation. And so we long for something like this. We long for the far green country, right? We long for this new place. It's, there's something inside of us that we always want it to be like it was before. And, and to a lesser degree, we do that in our own lives, right? And usually what that means is when it was good for me, I want it like it was. We do it in political slogans. Uh, the political person comes and says, I will make it like it was before. And that's kind of this undefined time. We, but our memories are, our memories are off. You, you don't believe me? Have you ever gone back to your elementary school? Uh, it's a lot smaller than I remember it. <laughs> Uh, the teachers are smaller than I remember it. I can't even sit in the desks anymore. I go in the bathroom. My goodness, it's like culture shock. We, we just have this view that the past is always better and the past is always bigger. But there is something about that, that longing that is pointing to something farther back. We long for something to be like what it was. And one day, it will. And all the things now will seem like little chairs in an elementary school room. That seems so big so long ago. The new heaven and new earth, nothing will be wrong. Everything will be beautiful. So first it's a garden. Now it's a city. So it's not just any city. It's the holy city, Jerusalem, now coming down. Now, I don't think this means now here's the garden and now this city comes down in the middle of the garden. It's just another way of describing the same thing. Now, we live in a place that likes the mock cities. Let's be honest here in Bozeman. And it we, we have a general disdain for them. They're a place we visit. They're the place we moved from, 80% of you. You know, they're the place you wanted to escape. And we have this, a lot of mythology, too, about the rural areas. I mean, Hallmark movies are coming to persecute us in the next month. And what is the, what is the one plot of the, the movie? City guy who works too much uh, has a girlfriend who decides to visit rural parents and meets poor rural guy who is extremely good looking and wears a plaid shirt. Like, we have these images that the city is the terrible place and the rural places are the places where there's less crime. It's not true. Per capita, small towns are way higher in crime than cities. We, we think of cities as cesspools. But it's also places where more people can live for Christ, right? And so in, in the book of Revelation, you have the city of Babylon, which is the world, and then you have the city of God, which is here, and they compete against one another. And here symbolically, the city is the place where everyone is together and safe. But the symbolism gets stretched further. Now the city is a bride, verse 2. And then I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven... So now we're back down on the earth, remember? Prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed. Now, a bride now is another way to describe what the new creation is like. And he's layering the images. Now, I've been to a few weddings. 
I've even stood, not in this room yet, but right here for weddings. And listen, no one has ever taken a picture of me. No one has even looked at me. They don't care. Who are they looking at? They're looking at the bride. When the doors open, everyone's eyes aren't up here. They're on the bride coming down the aisle. And so here comes the bride from heaven down. We're told who the husband is, verse 9. One of the seven angels with the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues said, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. Now, the Old Testament imagery is that God is the groom. And if you read history, you realize God seems to be stuck in the worst marriage of all time. Because the story is there's a lot of cheating over and over and over again. And God just takes the people back over and over and over again. But that's over. Now there is a holy city, a bride made beautiful. And you're not supposed to, you know, draw this. Like, here you have a city that is a bride that is being brought to her groom, which is a lamb. Now, the lamb is mentioned in verse 14, verse 22, verse 23, verse 27, 22, 1, 21, 3. The lamb is central, and the lamb is Jesus. And so we get this long sentence now verse of a city in 9 through 21. So you got the lamb, you got the bride. The bride is coming down, which is a city, which is also a garden. And what do we know about this city? Well, verse 10 through 14, one sentence, it shines with the glory of God. The jasper is clear. It's shimmering. There's 12 gates, which represent 12 tribes and 12 apostles. The foundations are the 12 apostles. And then you get the city measured, verse 15 through 17. It's a perfect cube. Now, do you know the only other perfect cube in Scripture? The Holy of Holies. And so the image is, here is a perfect cube coming down from heaven on earth. The Holy of Holies where God has dwelled. But now there's no curtain to protect because there's no sin. There's nothing that we need to be protected from anymore. The holiness of God is now coming down. It is 12,000 stadia in length, width, and height. That's about 1,400 miles. That's Bozeman to Toronto. I looked it up, okay? That is a long ways, and it's even longer when you consider that how people traveled in the first century. The point is not heaven is exactly this amount, this, this length, this height, this width. It's, they're just saying it's huge. It's huge. And it's the holy of holies. It's where God dwells. So you have the new creation. You have the garden. You have this city that is the bride, that is this cube, which is the holy of holies, which is now down on earth, which we don't need to be protected from. Verse 17 through 21, the material of it, pure gold and glass glistening, precious stones. A lot of these stones are from the breastplate of the high priest. Gates were made of pearl, great pearl. The streets are made of gold. I don't think it's talking about wealth. I think it's talking about splendor. And in the middle of this is verse 3, which is kind of the center of this whole thing. You can underline verse 3. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, the dwelling place is now among the people. He will dwell with them. 
They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. This is what makes it good. God's holiness and his glory are now present with his people and we don't need to be protected from it. This is the promises of scripture over and over and over again. I'll just read you three. Leviticus 26, I will put my dwelling place among you. He's talking about the tabernacle here. I will not abhor you. I will walk among you. Walk, you know, like Adam, like God was walking in the garden. But now I will walk among you and be your God and you will be my people. Here's Jeremiah a couple centuries later. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel. After that time, I will put my law in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be, there it is again, their God. They will be my people. Here's Ezekiel 37. My dwelling place will be with them. I will be their God. They will be their people. You see verse three, God's dwelling place in Revelation 21, is now with his people. That's humanity in general. But in the same verse, John switches the word for humanity to ethne, as in all peoples, people from every tribe, people from every language, Jews and Gentiles, men, women, slave, free, all will be part of God's covenant people. God's people are not monocultural, and seemingly they keep their culture intact in the new heavens and new earth. Now, it's true that God is uh, with us, but it's also true he is not with us right now in some sense. He has promised not to leave us and forsake us. He has promised to give us a helper in the Holy Spirit. But in a real sense, we cannot see him. And Paul even says it in 2 Corinthians, while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. We, we feel that, right? Like we can say, oh, God is with me. But we are away from the Lord, and here we walk by faith and not by sight. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Something is coming in Revelation 21, this garden, city, temple, bride, where God will dwell with us, and we will be his people. That's amazing. All right, let's see what is missing Sometimes the only way to describe things is to mention it in negative. And in fact, I think the only way to describe heaven is to talk about what's not there, not what is there, because we don't understand what it means in the positive of these opposite things. So verse 1, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there was no longer any sea. That seems like a strange one. I remember reading my first book on heaven and the person was lamenting, like, I love sunsets at the beach. I'm going to be so disappointed in heaven. And this is a person writing a book on heaven who was a Christian and someone I love. Uh, I'm going to be so disappointed because there is no water there. There is no sea there. And I'm just happy to tell you that that's actually not the case. Why is the sea singled out? The sea is singled out because in Revelation and in Daniel, it is, is the place of evil it is the place of unbelieving nations. It is the place of the dead. It is the place where the beast comes out of. I mean, read cosmic mythology. That is the place of chaos. So you're a Jew. You're not a seafaring people. You don't have GPS and you don't have depth finders. You hate the sea. The sea is the place of chaos. The sea of the, is the place of evil. And so when God says there will be no more sea, what he means is all of evil is wiped out. Now, if you go to the throne room scene in Revelation 4 and 5, there is a sea, but that sea is glass. 
Remember Jesus, when he's with his disciples, there's a storm and the sea is going to crush them. And what does Jesus say? Be still. And so into a context where people are being lit on fire and thrown to, you know, to animals and being crucified by the hundreds and you want to be, okay, hey, God has a plan for your life. Do you want to be a Christian? You're probably going to get crucified. Your kid's probably going to get thrown to the wolves. You want to follow Jesus? I mean, that's kind of the gospel presentation. He's saying that in the presence of God, the, e- the evil sees like this. That's, that's the image. And so in Revelation 21, there is no sea. There is no evil. There is no threat from Satan. Second thing, verse 4, there are no tears. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. I take that to mean God will touch you. Hmm? He will wipe away your tears. I've been a pastor long enough to know the grief represented even in this room. And honestly, it's overwhelming uh, to know the grief of that many people. But we, we, we don't grieve in such a way as if the grief will never end. It's going to end. Your tears are going to be wiped. And for some of you, this is going to be a complete radical reformation of who you are. You won't cry anymore. There will be no more tears. There'll be nothing to cry about. We're given a glimpse of this in Revelation 7. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them. Ever felt that? Maybe not in Montana, but not nor any scorching heat for the lamb is at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will shepherd them to springs of living water. God will wipe every tear from their eyes. So there is no more struggle. There is no external oppression from sin and there is no internal kind of consternation because of sin. There is no internal struggle. You will never struggle with sin again. You'll never have a desire to. You will never need to repent of anything. The curse of Genesis 3 is over. I mean, can you imagine? Go back to Genesis 3. Genesis 3. Remember, God walks into the garden after Adam and Eve have done something really stupid and ruined it for all of us. Adam and Eve hide because they don't believe that they can be loved without controlling the information, right, that other people see. And so there they are sowing fig leaves and they hear the sound of the God walking. And instead of running towards God as he's walking in the garden, they go, we're in the bushes and Eve's made some clothes for us. Why are they doing that? Because of guilt, because of shame. There is never a time in the new creation where God is going to walk by you and you feel like you have to run or you feel like he's overpowering. I'm, I'm not going to be able to handle it. It's, it's not like that. He's, he's going to be with you, dwelling with you. And so there are no tears. Our, our, motive, our motives, think about this. Our motives will be pure in every single situation. How is that even possible? I can't even get through a morning with that being the case. Everyone's like, did I talk to Darren this morning? No, you're good. There will be no more gossip. There will be no more temptation. You'll never be separated from anyone. There will be no more hiding. You know, Tolkien, who wrote Lord of the Rings, said all the sad things on earth will become untrue. 
And what he meant is that God is going to take all the painful things that hamper you, hinder you, hurt you, and remove them completely. John Erickson Tata, quadriplegic uh, Christian woman, now in her 70s, cancer survivor, unbelievable, reflects on this in particular, saying these words, I hope in some way I can take my wheelchair to heaven. With my new glorified legs, I will stand up on resurrected legs. I will be next to the Lord. I will feel the nail prints on his hands, and I will say, thank you, Jesus. He will know I've meant it because he'll recognize me. And then I will say, Lord Jesus, do you see this wheelchair over here? Well, you were right. When you put me in it, it was a lot of trouble. But the weaker I was, the harder I leaned into you. The harder I leaned into you, the stronger I discovered you to be. I do not think I would have ever known the glory of your grace were it not for the weakness of the wheelchair. So thank you, Lord. Now, if you like, can you send that thing off to hell? Can you send that thing off to hell? That is what it means by everything sad will become untrue. No tears. Third, no temple. Verse 22. I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. So the Lord and the Lamb are the temple. There's no, there's no more mediating thing for the presence of God. The Holy of Holies, which was in the temple, is the city itself, is the new creation itself. So now we get, get to enjoy God. There's no, oh, the holiness is going to ruin me. I can't take it. I'm going to fall down. You, you don't have that anymore. You're in perfect communion with him. The holiness doesn't overwhelm you. There's no sun and moon, verse 23. The city does not need a sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light. There's no day or night. Night's associated with, you know, sneaking around, with doing things you shouldn't do. And there's also no day because there, there's, no, there's no sun. Now, does this mean there's literally no sun and no moon, and it's light all the time, and there's never any darkness, and there's never really any sleep either. I, I'm not sure. I mean, there is rest before the fall. I think you'll probably sleep in heaven. But there is the glory of God, which shines through everything. And then nothing will be impure, verse 25 to 27. On that day, the gates will never be shut. There will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought to it. Nothing impure will ever enter it. And anyone who does, or anyone who does shameful and deceitful things. In other words, there's no sin. There's nothing deceitful. There's nothing wrong. I mean, look at verse 25. There, the gates are never closed. Now, in the, in the first century and really before that, and really even up until maybe the 1600s, if you're in a rural area, you're going to die if here comes the army and you just stay at your house. You're going to run to Helm's Deep. You're going to run. This is Lord of the Rings morning. You're going to run to the castle and they're going to shut the gate. But now there's no reason to shut the gate because nothing's coming. There's nothing to protect from. The gates are always open. In other words, the curse of Genesis 3 is over. So that's what's missing. Now, I've left out the middle section on purpose. My professor, the late Grant Osborne, wrote a Revelation commentary, calls this section a word from our sponsors. And that is verse 5 through 8. And you can write in your Bibles, a word from our sponsors. He who is seated on the throne said, I'm making everything true, new. Then he said to me, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. So John's been writing the entire time. So God decides, okay, 
John, or maybe this is Jesus, he's on the throne. We, it, 50-50, you pick, okay? And that's, when we go through Revelation, that's essentially how I'm going to preach it. 50-50, you pick half the time. So this is God, this is Jesus, whatever. And he says, okay, John, stop. We're going to stop the scene. And I want you to write something down for the people who are listening to this as you read it. So the whole narrative stops. So you've got the new heavens, the new earth, the temple, the garden, the bride. Pause. Then you've got the city and the bride and the temple again. And in the middle of this, a word from our sponsors. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. That is, there is no before him. This is back to Genesis 1. Before creation, there was nothing but God. And for a billion trillion years, there's been nothing but God. And before that billion trillion years, there was another billion trillion years. There was no time until God created time. In the beginning is the start of time. And before that, there was no time and there was God. That's Psalm 90. Before the mountains were born from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. I mean, try to describe God without time. I mean, you just kind of get broken, right? But he becomes this anchor. There is a beginning and omega. There is an end. And this omega now says this. To the thirsty, I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. So this, this is for us. This is, okay, a word from our sponsors. John, address the people who are going to hear this book read. So this is for you. Now, John has been pulling from his gospel a lot. I am the light of the world. Whoever walks in light and darkness but will have will have the light of life. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever comes to me will live. Even though he dies, he will live forever. And then John 6, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry. He who believes in me will never be thirsty. And so he gives this beautiful vision of our longing, of all the things we long for in Revelation 21. And in the end of that, he goes, do you want a drink? Do you want the free drink? Now, where are all these longings coming from? C.S. Lewis talks about it in Mere Christianity and Hope, that if there is not uh, a way to satisfy the longings on earth, it must exist somewhere. Like the longings prove that the satisfaction is somewhere else. It has to come from the far off country. And you know this, that your sufferings are not for nothing. I mean, listen, how often are you troubled by tomorrow, today? that your knees are shaking. And what Jesus says to that person is, take a drink. He's offering you satisfaction of the longing at the end of the story now. Listen, if, if you believe in a judgment day, that everything unseen will be seen, and the alpha and the omega in the midst of that judgment day goes, do you want this? Your life will be different. You don't have to walk around grieved all the time or hurt or sorry, or angry, or ashamed. You don't have to enjoy sorrow. You don't have to be a pessimist. You know the end of the story. Jesus in John 4, there's a woman at the, at the well, and what does he say to her? I will give you living water. And she's like, what are you talking about? And he's, you can have it for free. And then at the end of John's gospel, what does Jesus say from the cross? I thirst. Do you know what that is? That is Jesus taking what, what it means to be so separated from God 
and in our place, taking that cosmic lostness so that we would never have to say, there's no water anywhere. That, that's, what, that's what he's saying on the cross. I mean, just think of the people who received this letter. They sang songs as they were being torn apart by animals. Their testimonies were so calm and collected that other people signed up to be crucified. You don't have that kind of hope if Revelation 21 and 22 isn't real. If you don't have some sort of anchor to radically reorient your life, you're just going to get crushed by life. And you know what? Some of you might be getting crushed. Corey Ten Boom, one of my favorite illustrations of this, she was in one of the concentration camps, locked in solitary confinement. She gets up in the morning in solitary confinement, sings at the top of her lungs, stand up, stand up for Jesus, so everyone could hear. Who does that? Someone who believes this is going to happen. There's a threat, verse 8, the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all the liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. There are vice lists in the New Testament, and they're not meant to be read like you go to your kid and be like, you lied that you're going to end up in hell. That's not what that is. This is, if your life is marked by this, you will be consigned to the second death. Now, do you want the free gift of water or not? Hell is not a place where people repent. Hell is not a place where people even want to get out of. It's an endless existence of evil and shame. They're still shaking their fists at God. It is hatred and jealousy. It is who we are at our core without God's grace. So, what comes down? What's the end of the story? A garden, city, temple, bride. <laughs> what is missing? The curse of Genesis 3. That's what's missing. And what about you? You know, all of you are going to die. And our culture sweeps death under the rug. We clean it up. We put makeup on it. We hide from it. We sanitize it. But death is horrible. And my greatest longing as a pastor is to help you make it there. That you would not just die, but you would live and die as a Christian with a Revelation 21, 22 hope. That invisible reality that one day will be made visible on earth. Let's end with C.S. Lewis' line. As he ends the Narnia Chronicles, as we end this story of the Bible, now at last they were at the beginning of chapter 1, the great story, which no one on earth has ever read which goes on forever and ever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. That's what we're looking for. Let's pray. Lord, may everyone here take the water that will satisfy all their longings. And may no one enjoy sorrow and grief. May no one be pessimistic about this world, especially as we come to an election season and everyone's worried what's going to happen. We know what's going to happen, Lord. The new heavens and new earth are coming. And so we live not uh, in arrogance or pride, but just humility, offering water to anyone who will have it. May we all drink the water that will satisfy us. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing as we close.